Head to this evening as well, we're just an announcement, we're starting a new study in the book of Jude, beginning this evening, our study will be in the book of Jude, and I'm looking forward to that, I'm going to ask that you join me in prayer, and uh, it's, it's, everything's okay, <laughs> right up front, we're getting everybody where they need to go, but this evening we'll be beginning in the book of Jude, and we're looking forward to that, and so please just pray towards that end. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10. And uh, this morning, we're looking at a transitional passage, a section in Matthew's Gospel. And we're looking forward to this unique aspect of God calling, Christ calling His men to come and to serve with Him in a more pronounced way in ministry. There comes a point in all of our lives, in our relationship with Him particularly, as we give ourselves over to the living for the King, living for Christ, and particularly in the lives of the apostles, as they'll become known here in our text. Our title is The Master's Men, Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. There came a, a distinct call, a time to where Christ calls them into full-time vocational ministry, if you will. This is a part of their discipleship calling. But Jesus invites these 12 individuals to come and to follow him. So let's find our place in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, Verses 1 through 4. And the Bible says, And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, to himself, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Then verse 4, Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. We come to Matthew's gospel, and as I said a moment ago, we come to a pivotal, pivotal moment in Jesus's ministry. His approach to formal ministry changes. I want you to find your eyes in the text with me going back to verse 36 that helps lead and bridge the context here. In verse 36 of chapter 9, Jesus, last time we saw him in our study together, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, action item, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Last time together, we stopped at this passage looking where Jesus looks and the focus is on the great need of the white harvest that is ready to be harvested. And Jesus' exhortation to his disciples to pray, to pray. And it's a reminder to us that this is the regular theme of our lives as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ is prayer and prayer ministry. But as we come to chapter 10, verse 1, we see a distinct line of demarcation. Prayer is not where we stay. It happens after prayer. What happens after prayer? Well, in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Jesus intentionally calls 12 men to himself. These are the disciples of Christ who become known as the Twelve Apostles. For the first time in Scripture, in Matthew's usage, we have this designation of the Twelve Apostles there in verse 2. Now the names of the Twelve Apostles are these. We'll expand more upon that in just a moment. Now, when it comes to the Apostles in church history, we have two dynamics. One dynamic is to make too much of the Apostles. Throughout church history, you have church traditions that not only honor and esteem the church apostles, but they worship the apostles. There's much emphasis given over to the apostles in everyday life in ministry, even of their giftings, if you will, that was assigned to them for that period in that time. Many believe that, that they can still have today. For example, just a few days ago in Kenya, I had a lovely young man, a, a very friendly man come up to me, and he grabbed my hand and he touched it, and he said, and in Kenya, the way they say apostle is apostol. And he said, I am apostol. Now you are apostol. 
And so all around the world, there, there are people who, who think that very simply, that they are an apostle simply by calling. What we find in Scripture is that the apostles, there are only a few apostles. And the, these are those who were interactive with Christ in his earthly ministry, gifted, as we see here in the text, for certain purposes as they went out in the name of Christ. But, but, so there's two dynamics. Church tradition and even practice today can, can esteem them too highly, taking the focus off of the person of Christ and, and give too much focus upon that of man. But then there's also another extreme, and that is to be completely ignorant of the 12 apostles. If most of us are honest, in our tradition at least, if we're not careful, our understanding of the apostles, our knowledge of the apostles extends to our Bible reading and maybe one lesson that we had in Sunday school at the age of six, and then we never return to it again with a fuzzy memory of who exactly are the 12 apostles. Most people could not even name the 12 apostles. So you have two extremes. Two dynamics. And what we find here in the passage as we just go verse by verse through Matthew is this is a pivotal moment in Matthew's gospel where we see the foundation of the church being laid as Christ calls uh, these men to himself. A song we often sing is, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Friends, we have a firm foundation in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what we find is, if you'll turn with me, keep a finger here, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. We find that in order to have a balanced understanding of the apostles, their role in office, that we need to remind ourselves of what Paul gives instruction to, to the church at Ephesus regarding them and their ministry. Paul is writing in this famous passage, Ephesians 2, verse 20, and he reminds us that Christ is, in this metaphor of a building, the cornerstone. Every structure has a foundation. Every structure has a cornerstone. He wants us to know that Christ is the cornerstone of the church. Ephesians 2.20, Now therefore, he says, You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on this household of God that we are, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Friends, I want to remind us this morning that Christ is the chief cornerstone of the church. And Scripture lets us know that in this special office, that even though he was only present for a time, that the apostles had a special role in the earthly ministry of Christ. And in one sense, their doctrine that Christ gave to them, it is the foundation of the church. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus begins to question his disciples. And he asked Peter, he asked them, who do you say the Son of Man is? What is your confession regarding my nature, my person, my ministry? And Peter confesses that Christ is the Son of God. Jesus says, and I will say this to you, that you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock, this profession of faith, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Friends, it is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord that is the foundation of the church. And what we have in the New Testament is the apostles' doctrine that has been given and handed down to us. Now, as we consider the apostles in verses 1 through 4 this morning, we need to remember that the apostles had the privilege of being trained by the Lord. What an experience this was. What a privilege this was. One of the distinctives of who can be an apostle are those who were trained by the Lord, who experienced and interacted with him in his earthly ministry. And so when someone claims, like my friend that I met over in Kenya, that they are an apostle or an apostle, we must point them back to Scripture and show them what Scripture says. They, these apostles had the privilege of being trained by him, living life with him, witnessing his earthly teaching and ministry, being commissioned directly by him, and also receiving divine revelation from God. 
In fact, the Word of God came through them, and as I said a moment ago, is the very foundation that we rest upon today, and what a foundation it is. As we think about the role of the church, how Christ's church has stood against the very gates of hell, nothing has come against it. You study Western civilization, you study church history, and there have been many attempts to eradicate the, the, the church, and yet few have ever succeeded, and no one ultimately will succeed in eradicating the church of Jesus Christ. Now, as I said a moment ago, there is a great ignorance when it comes to who the apostles are. As we look into this passage, we take their names, and we'll go one by one. And the first thing we find is, as we ask this question, if Jesus were to call a group of men to himself, what would they be like? If the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, were to build a band of brothers, what would they be like? What would their personalities be like? How rich would they be? How influential would they be? Surely they would have means. Surely they would have influence. Certainly they would be, as we use the word often today, influencers of culture and society. Surely these would be who Jesus would pick. And we could go on and on. But what we find is that Jesus calls to himself 12 ordinary men. Twelve men like you and like me. These men are all distinct and gifted differently, but these are twelve men that we would in their day and even today esteem as just very basic, very common, quote in literature's usage, every man, the every man prototype. Turn with me also one other passage by way of introduction to 1 Corinthians 1.26 and let's remember what Paul says about how God uses. Who would God call to himself? That's a great question. Who would God choose as his apostles? Well, surely they would be men of great renown, great influence. But that's how we think. And if we look at Scripture authentically, we find that God never calls people based upon their earthly status and position. God qualifies the called. God gifts the called. God calls men to himself and oftentimes must remove things in their life before they can be fit for his use and fit for his service. For example, we simply can think of Moses, son, a prince of Egypt, called to the backside of the desert for 40 years. Much, much preparation, much work went into preparing Moses for the calling that God would have for him. 1 Corinthians 1.26, Paul writes to the church who is struggling with pride and simply says this, For you see your calling, brothers, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty in the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. Who is the kind of men, man, group of men that, that Jesus calls? It, it, are, it is men that are the exact opposite of who Herod would call of who our, uh, Alexander the Great would call. It's the exact opposite of what society would esteem as great and erudite and mighty and powerful. The point is not that they are basic and poor and dumb. That's not the point at all, and that's not what Scripture says. The, basic, the, the, the point is simply this. They are every man. Jesus delights in using the base things, the common things of this world to give great glory to his gospel. It's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul will say this, we simply are clay pots. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Paul is speaking as an apostle, one and duly called in due time. And he says, we are not special. We are not platformed. We are simply jars of clay that God has chosen for his purposes. And the only value that we have is the the treasure of the gospel. And so Paul says in that passage, 2 Corinthians 4, what does an apostle say? We preach not ourselves, but we preach Christ. And who are we? We are slaves 
for your sake. So friends, before we begin to look at some characteristics here of these apostles, I just want to remind all of us, who are we as the church of Christ? Who are we as those who name the name of Christ and are saved by grace? We are simply jars of clay. We are expendable. We are replaceable. There is nothing special in me or in you or in any of us except for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not simply saying there is no inherent dignity or image of God impressed upon mankind. I'm not saying that at all. Certainly, we have value because we bear the image of God. But I'm talking about in life, in ministry, and it's this calling of being a disciple of Jesus or being a Christian. We are simply slaves of Christ. Now, as we go back to Matthew chapter 10, now, we have an interesting passage before us. I don't want to speed too fast through it. But we want to walk through this text and see what we can glean from verses 1 through 4. And as we look at this list of Jesus moving from the great need of the gospel harvest to then calling to himself 12 disciples, there are some gaps we want to fill. The first thing we notice is this, that they are all Galileans. All of them are Galileans, except for Judas Iscariot. All the apostles and Christ himself were from the region of Galilee. Again, this goes back to the point that we were just making, that Paul made, is that the Galileans were considered low class, blue collar, unimportant. Can anything good come from this region? This is not where your movers and shakers would come from. And yet this is exactly where Jesus delights in doing his work and calling to himself. One commentator said this, the, the region of Galilee was very distinct, but particularly in this way. Those who were from Galilee had a distinctive type of speech, common, rough. It made them easy to identify. So essentially Southerners, of course. I'm kidding. But the point was is they were known most distinctly by their speech, and oftentimes we are as well. And some of you Northerners don't think that's funny. I get it. But they were known by their speech. Well, this is interesting because if God were to choose anybody, surely he would choose the Greeks who put great value on sophistry, the great ability of oratory. Surely if God would come and choose human mouthpieces, he would choose those who had the most erudite minds and abilities to communicate that. And yet God chose to go to the place to where people were basic and common, easy to identify, by their speech. In fact, in the book of Acts, the wealthy, the religious leaders are all stunned in that these men had no education. These men are speaking with that Galilean tongue, and yet they have power. They have boldness. They're turning literally the world upside down, Acts 17 tells us. They're filled with the Spirit of God. Jesus delights in working counterculturally. God delights in working counterculturally culturally against this world's, quote, established ways of doing things. Now, the point is not accents and ways of speaking or any of those things. The point is simply this. God will do what he will. God does what he will. The judge of all the earth shall do right. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 makes clear, Paul says, that God operates under the counsel of his own will. There's, it's not up for a vote. Matthew chapter 26, verse 73 tells us that Peter's accent betrayed him on this point when he's thinking of the distinctiveness of being Galilean. When the maid asked him, you're, you're one of those followers of Jesus, aren't you? And Peter, in his low moment, denied Christ as Christ said he would. What betrayed him, though, was his Galilean accent. We note, first of all, that Jesus chooses almost all of them from this region of Galilee. Secondly, as we look at this list we also can deduct and note that most of them were deeply impacted by the ministry of John the Baptist, the ministry and preaching of John the Baptist. Looking at their conversion stories or when Jesus called them, looking and comparing John chapter 1 to this passage, we find that, that when John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, Andrew and John, who were present there that day, immediately began to follow Jesus. They hear John's message and pointing of the attention away from his preaching of repentance and bearing fruits and keeping with repentance and pointing them to the Lamb of God who follow him. John and Andrew certainly do just that. If you remember, Andrew immediately, John tells us, goes and finds his own brother Peter and brings him to Christ. 
And in fact, one key area here is, is later on in the book of Acts, we find that when Judas Iscariot hanged himself, that one of the criteria for choosing the new disciple who would take the place, it would be Matthias, was that he must have been part of and under the ministry of John the Baptist and a witness of the resurrection. Thirdly, a key thing that we see here in this list of men that, that Jesus is assembling and bringing to himself is that they are sovereignly chosen. They're sovereignly chosen. This is not unusual. As a matter of fact, even to those who are new to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and his election and salvation, and many times people come into that understanding later on in their growth and grace, but you simply go back to the book of Genesis and you find that this is God's pattern. God chose Abraham to be his person. God chose Abraham through, through which his seed, all the nations of the earth, would be blessed. Out of Abraham would come the Hebrews, the children of Israel, of which God would say, you only have I loved in this special, peculiar, electing love. He chose David to be the man after his own heart. Jeremiah, I've just given some examples. Jeremiah the prophet announces in, in chapter 1, verse 5 of the book of Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. Here in Matthew chapter 10, we simply have an extension of Jesus choosing who his disciples will be, particularly as they become apostles. Friend, it's a reminder to all of us that God elects not only to salvation, but friends, listen, he elects to service as well. You know what we mean by this. God calls men to serve in particular ways. And that call is not from mom. It's not from dad. It's from God himself. The calling is evident as an individual becomes gifted in maybe a particular realm of preaching the word or teaching the word in the realms of ministry. And the elders of the church and those around will come along and they will identify and affirm and say, this call is evident upon this young man. So as a church, we will now lay hands on him and we will ordain him to the gospel ministry. It's always interesting. Many people have a problem with the doctrine of election, God's sovereignty and our salvation, but they have no problem in God calling men to service. And they have no problem to God calling elect angels. And they have no problem to God sovereignly calling these disciples to himself. But they have a problem when it comes to them personally. And that's a different message altogether. But what we see here is that God sovereignly calls these men to himself. Going back to Matthew chapter 3 verse 13, we're reminded when Jesus was walking along the sea, the Sea of Galilee, and the text tells us that Jesus saw the two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother. They were fishing, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And the text tells us, verse 20, that they immediately left their nets and they followed him. Out of all the fishermen on the sea that day, Jesus specifically calls these men to follow him. In a particular moment, in John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus looks his apostles in the face, and this is what he says to them. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask in, the, in my name to the Father, that he may give to you these things I command you, that you love one another. God sovereignly called these men to his side, for a specific calling and purpose. And I want you to know today that God is still calling through his word. Not apostles, but God is calling to salvation, men and women to salvation. He is opening up their hearts and their minds to see their need of Christ, to see their great sin that separates them from a holy God. And God calls out to them. And among those who are called to salvation, God calls to service in more pronounced ways. And friends, this is to be the prayer of the church. God continue to raise up from our midst laborers for the harvest, workers for the harvest. We bow at this doctrine and we say, we're amazed. We say, Lord, thank you for how you've worked in the past. And Father, thank you for how you're working today as you call men and women to serve you, not in the sense of a capital A apostle, but how you call people to the work of the ministry. Now, Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, gives us a parallel background to this passage here in, in Matthew, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And Luke tells us that God, or excuse me, Jesus prayed, spent a season in prayer. More specifically, Jesus prayed 
all night before this official public call of the apostles. In fact, if you want to look there, it's Luke chapter 6, verse 12. And this parallels this account. And this is where Luke adds his detail. And then we come and see that this happens after Jesus spends a season in prayer. Luke chapter 6, verse 12, the text says, Now it came to pass in those days that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve whom he would also name apostles. Friends, there's much here for us to glean by the pattern of Jesus as we consider Luke's account here. God is not only sovereign as we've just seen as he calls these men to himself, but he has ordained the means of prayer. Oftentimes you get this type of question, why pray if God is sovereign? Or you know God's going to save whoever he's going to save, those typical type of arguments, so why share the gospel? Well, friends, quite frankly, you're disobedient if you do not obey. We have the calling and we have the commission to both pray and to preach and teach the gospel to every creature. Matthew chapter 28 tells us that all authority has been given to Christ. And therefore, our commission is to go forth in his name and to preach and teach and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And to teach them all things whatsoever he has taught us and commanded us. That, that, is, that is the mission of the church. We, we don't have to go find a mantra or a motto and say, now what does God want us to do today? Uh, coming up here in 2023, what does God want Grace Church to do? Friends, for the rest of our days, we will be fulfilling that, quote, great commission in our context here. It's a reminder to us that Jesus works through and has ordained the means. As we think about miracles, many are, are interested by miracles, the miracles of past and miracles today. But listen, Jesus in his ministry worked his miracles by means. And particularly, he has chosen the means of prayer. So to that question that maybe you don't get often, but I get it, talking theology with people, and why pray if God is sovereign? You just told us that God called his apostles. Look at the example of Christ. Not only look at the commands of Christ, but Christ went to his Father, giving us a model for ministry. This is a big decision. This is a very big moment in his ministry, and he, he dedicates it in prayer to the Father, praying all night long. And if we're honest, friends, there's, there's probably a handful of times in our life we've spent all night praying about anything. What an example, what a convicting example this, this is for us. So we consider the example of Christ. He works, he models for us, showing us what it means to take things to the Lord, to fast and to pray. He will later tell his disciples, this kind, speaking of demon possession, this kind only comes but by prayer and fasting. So in the mystery of Christ, as we think about his sovereign will and our faithfulness, God has called us to live faithfully, to take up the spiritual means and the spiritual disciplines and to follow through in faith and to bow to his will as we pray to say, Lord, we need wisdom, we need guidance. Give us light from heaven. Show us what your will is. I'm, I'm far too afraid that many of us are just living aimlessly, celebrating in right doctrine, what we'd say is orthodoxy, but living aimlessly in an undisciplined way, living by the flesh, not seeking the Lord's will and direction. It's a reminder to us we must have a right biblical theology, but also a right biblical practice, right biblical orthodoxy, but also right orthopraxy as we fulfill God's will even today, as we look at Jesus' pattern for calling these men to himself. As we look here at the list proper, this is a very interesting list, and the, the more time you spend meditating and looking at it, you see a number of things that I'd like to bring out to our attention here this morning. As we look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4 there, as he formally begins to list his apostles, these 12 apostles are organized into maybe the simplest form, three groups of four. There's a couple of key passages of Scripture, both in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in Acts, where the list, the full list, is given. And when it's given, in its simplest form, we see that it is groupings, three groupings of four. But as we dig in a little bit deep, deeper, we see that their names are these, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Lebius, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas known as Iscariot. Now, some distinctions and notations to make here is simply this. 
Some of these are confusing because they have different names in different passages of Scripture. They have names and they have nicknames, such as Peter, who's also known as Simon, and Levius, who's also known as Thaddeus. Thomas, who's also known as Didymus. They have other names and other listings. And so sometimes that is confusing. Looking at this list, we see that some of them have the same names. For example, verse 4, Simon has the name of both Peter and also Simon the Canaanite. So we see those distinctions are made. We also see that there's James, the son of Zebedee. There's also James, the son of Alphaeus. And that's not to mention James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James. And so we need, to, we need to know who these apostles are. We need to make these distinctions, and we need to know who is who. Just like you want people to know that you are you and not your brother or your sister, that you have a distinct personality. Sometimes when we don't take time to clarify, we think we're talking about one James all throughout the whole New Testament when there's actually six or seven Jameses that are mentioned to us. We see also in this list that there are two sets of brothers in verse 2. Peter and Andrew were brothers. And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, those are the, the sons of thunder. One apostle here is noted by his occupation, and that is the writer of Matthew's gospel. Notice verse 3, he designates himself as Matthew the publican. This is not to point to his position and his esteem, but Matthew is pointing to the fact that he is saved by grace. That here I am, Matthew, an apostle in a short economy of words, and God can save, if he can use any of these guys, Matthew a publican. And we saw back in chapter 9, Matthew's own calling and conversion when Jesus called him to himself. In every one of the lists, we see in verse 4 that Judas is always distinguished as Judas Iscariot, or Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. This is the stain that will always be upon him. In fact, in the Acts listing, he is not in Acts because he has already committed suicide in that passage, and they are working to elect another disciple to take his place. I want to point out one other thing as well as we look into these. Notice, if you look carefully, Jesus puts these disciples in groups of two. Groups of two. Here at the end of our passage in Matthew chapter 10, he is going to send them out two by two. This is important. Jesus sovereignly puts these apostles together. On a surface level reading, Peter is always head. He's always first in the group, designating a leadership among equals. When you consider the apostles, they're all apostles, but there is a leader even among the apostles, and that's Peter. And Peter seems to be the mouthpiece of the group. Philip is always the second head of the group, and then James is always the third heading there of the grouping. And they are put together two by two. In Mark chapter 6, verse 7, we're told that he called the twelve to himself, and he began to send them out two by two. So as we look at this list, Peter is linked together with Andrew, James is linked together with John, Simon is usually linked together, Simon Zelotus, there with Judas Iscariot. But friends, here as we glean this passage, this seemingly kind of transition passage of Scripture, there, there's much here for us. As we look at the, the ways that God calls these men to himself, they're distinctive individuals, we need to know who they are, but yet in Jesus' practice and pattern, we see he not only calls them, but he groups them together in intentional ministry. Ministry is never meant to be done alone. Ministry is never meant to be put all on one man, not even the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Here in Matthew chapter 10, we see a big line of demarcation where the teaching and preaching of Jesus has been singular, as Matthew has highlighted it. Jesus has been bearing, if you will, the load of ministry. But here... For our example, Paul says these things are written aforetime or previous for our learning and our admonition. Here Jesus models for us the pattern of ministry, wisdom and groupings and small group ministry, you could say. The distributing of leadership and, and pressures of ministry among a chosen group of men. John MacArthur says this, If Christ in his perfect humanity could not pour equal amounts of time and energy into everyone, he drew around him, then no leader should ever expect to be able to bear it all alone. That's a good word, friends. And here Jesus is modeling so much of this for us. He models prayer for us. He models the distribution of ministry for us in small group discipleship for us. It's a reminder to all of us. Listen, am I a disciple of Jesus? Hopefully that answer is yes. And then, then who is discipling me and who am I discipling? All of us need to be answering that question for all the days of our life. And not just for a, a quick season when we come to faith in Christ, 
But we need to be asking ourselves, number one, am I a true follower of Jesus, his disciple? But then who is like a Paul to me? Who is investing in me? And who am I investing in? Who is my discipler? And who is the one that I am discipling? And those are questions every single one of us need to answer. Let's not make it more complicated than it needs to be. If you're a mom and dad, you have your answer right there. For a season of time, God has given you your ministry right there. That's your full-time calling. That's your full-time ministry. Those at the breakfast table that you look at, that's who you're discipling. And so, friends, may the Lord find us faithful. But as we look at how Jesus breaks up this pattern, it's so healthy for us to observe. He will send them out two by two. No man goes out alone in this way. And he sends these men out for encouragement. Iron sharpening iron. So does a man sharpen the countenance of his friend. Sharpening comes by friction, doesn't it? You can see some of these personalities are opposites of each other. Andrew and Peter, those are opposites. Don't know much about Simon, but I'm, I'm sure he was glad to be an opposite of Judas. Uh, but he wasn't with Judas's number. But here we see these men are sent and chosen by God for ministry, for the preaching work of the ministry, for healings for this season. And they are given and they are sent with his power and with his authority. There's much for us to learn here and how we even operate in our leadership and as a church. A fifth thing that we see here with this listing and these, these disciples is this is about halfway through Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus began his earthly ministry, as uh, introduced to us in Matthew chapter 4, at 30 years of age. And this is halfway through his three-year public ministry. Here's the point. These disciples had very little training, formal training, in the eyes of the world. These men are not erudite, as we've already pointed out. They have no letters to their name. And yet halfway here, through their ministry, their best training would last about 18 months before Christ goes to the cross. We notice the key transition here in verses 1 and 2, where the Bible tells us, Matthew records for us, now Jesus called his 12 disciples, but then notice the transition. The names of the 12 apostles are these. And this is that line of demarcation where these followers of Christ, these close disciples, now become commissioned apostles. An apostle is an ambassador, one who is sent on an official authority of another. And that is what they are sent forth in the name of Christ, to go forth in his name with the signs that would be given particularly to the Jews. The Jews first required, Paul would say, a sign, if you remember. They are gifted with these abilities to go forth and preach the gospel and to perform signs and wonders in the name of Christ. This is both for their strengthening. This is also for many who will hear, witness, and believe. Now, how is this possible, we could ask? Well, Acts chapter 4 Verse 31 gives us the key text that reminds us of how Jesus will do this, particularly in his absence. And I'll read it for you. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had assembled themselves together, and when they had prayed, the place where they had assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke, notice here, the word of God with boldness. How do these common, everyday men go forth as apostles in the name of Christ, turning, as Acts 17 will tell us, the world upside down? Friends, I'll tell you this. As an apologetic for the Christian faith, if you have nowhere else to look and nothing else to consider, simply look at the pattern of the apostles who literally turn the world upside down. Each, as we'll close with in a few minutes, each dying just about a martyr's death. How do they do this? By the empowering of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in fact, Acts chapter 4 verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. They marveled, speaking of the religious leaders who are witnessing their preaching. They marveled at them, and then notice here, they realized that they had been with Jesus. Friends, put it all together. Listen, before we go and preach in the name of Christ, we must abide with him, as John 15 tells us. Before we go and work for Christ, we must bow and spend great time with him in his presence. We must commune with him. These men who witness their ministries, listen, they say, how are these men doing what they're doing? They realized they had been with Jesus. 
Jesus gives the pattern and the example by communing with the Father as we've already seen, continually pulling himself apart to pray. Now we see these men going forth in the same pattern, being used of God, common, inarticulate men, but empowered by God's Spirit, full of the Spirit, being bold as lions. Friends, look at Acts chapter 2 and 3 when you have a chance to look at the preaching of Peter. It's one of the most magnificent sermons that's ever been preached. Peter gives us the classic sermon example in Acts chapter 2, where he's led of the Spirit of God, preaching an expository sermon full of cross-references, referring back to the Old Testament. Peter gives them example after example, saying, now you remember, now consider what the prophet says, what the psalmist says. And he points, he preaches with conviction, he preaches with boldness. The question that they ask, what must we do to be saved, is not answered until after he preaches of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the question is, is how do these men do that? They are filled with God's Spirit. They are bold as lions. What leads the others to continue preaching in the name of Christ after they see their their friends martyred for the faith? James, the brother of Jesus, who's not one of the original twelve, but just to give an example, was known as the, the leader at the church at Jerusalem. He was literally thrown off the top of the temple, splattered onto the the cement, and killed gruesomely. That would typically lead others to to recede in fear. What, What leads people to continue to be faithful to the gospel? It is the power of Christ. It is the spirit of Christ. It is the reality, the power of the gospel. That's why many have said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Friends, as we look at this calling of the apostles to himself, it's a reminder to us that we must be filled with the Spirit as well. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. We must be sensitive to his leading. We must commune lengthy periods of time with his word and in prayer. And then we go forth with boldness that only God's word and the power of the transforming power of the gospel can give to us as our identity. You, you know this is true. I know this is true. The weakest times that I am spiritually is when I, as a disciple, am apart from God's Word. I'm not spending time in His Word. I begin to be lulled away and get busy and start to operate in the flesh, which profits nothing, which gives no glory to God. I experience physical and spiritual powerlessness, and you do too. We repent of that, and we get on our knees, and we commune with the Lord. And then there's a, there's a, there's a boldness, and there's a filling of the being yielded to the Holy Spirit and allowing Him to control us as consistent with His gospel and His word and His truth that we recognize is His anointing, His leading, and His empowering. Who gives us the boldness to share the gospel when fear of man controls us? We normally are afraid of our friends or their opinions, yet we know they need the gospel. What what gives us that loving, compassion, and boldness to do such a thing like these apostles? It's spending time with the Lord and being obedient to the truth that He reveals to us. I want to remind all of us that while the office of capital A Apostle has ceased, according to what we see in the New Testament, all of us, like these men who were called to Jesus for public ministry, are called to be sent ones. All of us are called to be sent ones. And we pointed to that great commission, witnessing his gospel. Friends, I want to remind you this morning that you cannot be a sent one unless you've experienced the transforming power of the gospel. First of all, by experience. And then second of all, by action, as you become a witness to the reality of the power of the gospel in your life. You can't give what you do not have. You cannot share the gospel that you yourself have not experienced. So may the Lord show us this morning if there are any who are outside of grace and in faith. Two other quick points I want to draw from this list that I feel like are very important for our attention this morning. As we look at these names, we see that each apostle had major flaws and sins. Each apostle that God uses here, it's a reminder of God's sovereign grace that I've pointed to already plenty this morning. It's a reminder to us that, listen, God can use anyone for his ministry. Listen, some of you are sitting there with me this morning, and you are constantly plagued by your sin, your sins of the past. Satan is constantly reminding you of what you've done, and you're thinking, God could never use me in ministry. Do you you know what I've done? Listen, I don't ever need to know what you've done, but God knows what you've done. God will forgive you. Come to him in repentance and ask him to use you. 
And you say, well, what's, how do you know? How, what's your example? Simply look at this list. You ask me, what's the difference between Peter and Judas? Peter denies Christ three times. Here's the difference. God's sovereign grace is the difference. Peter said, I blankety-blank don't know the man. How could God ever use him to preach in Acts chapter 2 like I just told you that he did? You can see in Acts chapter 2, God's sovereign grace, friends. And this morning, his grace is extended to you. Come to Christ. When you look at these apostles, you see men that if God can use them for ministry as heralding his truth and being a faithful witness to the gospel, he can use anyone. Praise the Lord. Grace, grace. As we sang this morning, God's grace, grace greater than some of our sin. No, grace greater than all of our sin. We praise the Lord for that. And that is why these men redefine, called, repurposed, turn the world upside down. It is believed that, as we'll see hopefully next week, the Apostle Andrew, although he's obscure, doesn't have a public ministry like Peter does. Andrew is believed to be one of the first missionaries taking the gospel to the far regions of the globe. There's a reason that the state of Alabama, my home state, has for its flag St. Andrew's Cross. That Scotland, known as St. Andrew's, portions of Scotland, St. Andrew's Scotland, has for its national flag St. Andrew's Cross. It is believed that Andrew went all over the place, both to modern-day Greece in Scotland, in great, what is now considered Great Britain, taking the gospel and the power and boldness of the Holy Spirit, reaching the world in ways in which only the judgment seat of Christ will tell us. And friends, let me just remind you, there's a compound effect to the gospel. Andrew, for example, I'm just giving you an example, will not receive the full reward, and we will not fully understand how God used Andrew until the day of Christ. We all know of Peter, no doubt, he was a little bit more visible. But friends, don't be surprised when Andrew was used in a way that is obscure and unseen, but we stand amazed and blown away by how God could use his faithfulness. And if God could use these men, he could use anyone. As we've mentioned already, the apostles that God calls to himself are pivotal. They're not salvific. There's no means of grace that comes through them. But we dare not flippantly just read through the list and case Sarah, Sarah, as Ephesians 2.20 tells us, Christ is the chief cornerstone, the whole building being fit together, and they are used as the foundation of the church. Revelation 21.14 tells us that their names are inscribed on the walls of the New Jerusalem. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5 refers to them in a very honoring way. In Acts chapter 4, verse 2, it is recorded for us that we have received the apostles' doctrine. Where do they get their doctrine? From Christ himself. Here in America, we have a a phrase that may be our official motto, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And when you look at this list of the apostles, you could apply that phrase very specifically. It strikes us that they're all so different, all so interesting, and yet God brings all of them together for his calling and for his purpose. He takes a zealot, a terrorist, he takes a publican, he takes fishermen, he brings them all together to preach his gospel. Well, friends, as we conclude this morning, just looking at this seemingly transitional passage of Romans chapter, Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, let's not stand with our mouths agape at what God has done through these men, although we can start there. But let's turn our attention and our gaze to how God's grace has reached us. Think about your own salvation. Think about how God has used you. For some of you, as I've talked about this morning, God is working in your heart. He's calling you to service in a particular way, speaking of that sovereign call. And you're simply fighting with him saying, well, you don't understand, God. You don't understand what I did when I was 15. You don't understand my sin. You don't understand the, the scars that I wear. Friends, listen, in the gospel, the only robes and scars that you wear are the scars of Christ. It's the robes of Christ. We are not like Hester Prynne in the scarlet letter this morning, continually, for all the days of our life, wearing a, a scarlet letter A upon our garments. Simply, the robes of Christ, if you are his child, if you have come to him by repentance and faith, the only robes that you wear are the robes of Christ. Maybe Satan would have you to believe that you could never be used of God because of, and insert the blank there. 
But friends, let me just remind you, God is still calling today, not apostles, not big A apostles, but God is still calling laborers to not only pray for the harvest fields that are wide into harvest, but God is still calling men and women to take his gospel. All of us are sent one. So the question is simply this, are we obedient? Are we saying yes to the Lord and what he speaks to us about through his word? We've been handed the truth of the apostles' doctrine. Are we faithful to teach it, to preach it, to believe it? Are we making disciples of those that God has brought to us in our families and in our lives? Who is discipling us, and, and then who are we discipling? And if that answer is, well, no one, then may the Lord convict us. May the Lord stir us up, as Paul said to Timothy, stir up the gift that is within you. May the Lord stir us up to repentance and following, to, following through to his example what he shows us of who we need to share the gospel with. Maybe the person that we need to be discipling is on our prayer list that we're asking God to save, but the problem is, is we've never shared the gospel with them ourselves. So oftentimes that is the case. We're afraid of men. We're afraid of their opinions. But may we be bold as we see in this pattern of these men who are common, everyday men, but yet they, they followed the Lord's command. They followed him, and the Lord blessed them and equipped them for the purpose of the ministry. Well, Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, we see this listing of the 12 apostles. They came to Christ as disciples, and now they leave him as apostles. And in verse 5, we'll see, as we look at their example, they will be commissioned and sent out under the power of the Holy Spirit for the work of the ministry. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And as we've gleaned some unique points, Lord, from this transition passage of Scripture, or our goal has been to just take a moment to not make too much of men for the purpose of worshiping them, but at the same time, Lord, watching your example, gleaning from Scripture and taking into account the, the whole of the Gospels, seeing, Lord, how you sought the Father's face for those that you would use and call to yourself. Where so often we can be addicted to control and trying to bring things into ourselves. But we see from the pattern of Christ that no man is capable of ministry all to himself. Father, thank you for your example. Thank you for modeling for us effective ministry and ministry models. of How to pour our lives into those and then teaching them to make disciples also who will then turn around and make disciples who will make disciples. Father, the question is, if we are saved by your grace, it's not whether we're a disciple, but who are you using us to disciple? These questions are ones that we need to linger long at and ask you, Lord, for wisdom and light. Lord, let us not put the cart before the horse. Don't, don't let us, Lord, forsake our own ministry to our spouses, our children, before we pursue proper vocational visible ministry as well. Bottom line, we need your grace. Father, thank you for your grace. And thank you that you have saved us and called us to the ministry, the ministry of treasuring the gospel of Christ. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.